Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning is in 1 Corinthians as we continue our study of this letter of Paul. We come to chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So I call your attention now to God's holy word as it was given to the Apostle Paul. It is inspired by God. It is therefore infallible. It is without error. And so let's attend with reverence to the reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its proclamation, and its hearing. You might recall that one of the things we learned last week was that the petty divisions uh, over which uh, teacher people favored in the church, uh, whether it was Paul or Apollos or Peter, uh, those divisions were just that. They were petty. They were silly. They were beneath Christians. And Paul pointed out that because of the union Christians have with Christ, we all belong to him. We all belong to Christ. And by extension, then, we all belong to one another. So it's silly to say, I'm of Paul, and for others to say, I'm of Apollos, because we are all of each other. In that sense, we are all, first and foremost, of Christ. That includes the great faithful teachers of the gospel. We're all of each other. So it was silly and petty of the Corinthian Christians to claim to be of Paul or of Apollos or of Cephas, that's Peter, because all of those great teachers belong to all of them. And thus, his apostles and servants, because they all belong to Christ and all of us are of Christ, are for all Christians to claim. So Paul begins today's passage with the words, Let a man so consider us. Teachers in the church, especially the apostles, should be considered as belonging to the whole church, as all belong to Christ. From there, Paul explains then that the apostles are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, and he then moves on to point out that the Lord is the ultimate and only infallible judge of how someone has served him. Now, grammatically, verse 4 is actually the focus of the passage. The four, you'll notice it's at the beginning of the verse, tells us that uh, verses 1 through 3 are true because verse 4 is true. 
And then similarly, there's a therefore at the beginning of verse 5, and that tells us that verse 5 is true because of what has just been said is true. So uh, that makes us focus on uh, verse 4. We need to zero in on verse 4 as we seek to understand this passage. As we do so, we see that Paul's reasoning depends on the final portion of the verse, but he who judges me is the Lord. So that's really the main point of this passage. The Lord is judge. And in context, we see that Paul is getting at the fact uh, that the faithfulness of a servant of Christ is judged by Christ himself. And several lessons then emerge from this truth, as Paul explains in this passage. Number one, you are not your own judge. Many of us like to think, well, uh, we don't want anyone else to judge us. Now, there is a place for judgment we'll talk a little bit about today as well. But uh, we think then, though, that we are qualified to judge ourselves. And in fact, no, only Christ is qualified to judge any of us. Number two, uh, while you and I can only judge by the outward fruit that someone bears, and we should, only God knows who is really saved, and only God knows what is in a person's heart. That is what you and I will ultimately be judged according to, uh, not what other people think of us, but what's in our heart. Three, until that day of judgment, though, you should consider all who bear outward fruit to be servants of Christ. Number four, then, the apostles must be heeded as stewards of the mysteries of God. So, hear and obey Christ through his scriptures that are written and endorsed by his apostles and prophets. Now, let's parse out this passage, and I think you'll see these lessons come out. Uh, We'll begin with the main point. The Lord is judge. Therefore, Christ himself is the ultimate and only infallible judge of the faithfulness, or the lack thereof, of someone who is called his servant. Now, that does not mean that we have no business recognizing who is or who is not a true servant of Christ. We're commanded to do that as well. That's not in this passage, but it is in other places in Scripture. Jesus tells us that there are going to be false servants of his, pretenders, people who pretend to be his sheep, but who, in fact, are wolves there to attack the flock. Matthew seven fifteen through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So he's telling us they're judge. You should look at the fruits that people bear and see if they truly are my servant when they claim to be. He goes on and says, Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So Jesus says it is possible for us to tell that Some people are false servants of Christ because eventually they will bear fruits that are not consistent with the gospel. They'll be bearing bad fruit. For a while they might pull the wool over our eyes to 
can extend the metaphor of sheep and, 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 uh, and wolves there. But they won't be able to do so forever. Eventually the fruit they bear will show that they are not really Christians. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. So there were people, John says, who appeared that they were Christians for a while, but they've now gone out from us because they really weren't of us. In Matthew 7, Jesus goes on to explain that there there will be some who appear outwardly to be bearing fruit and may even themselves be convinced that they are serving Christ. They will be shown in the end not to be his sheep. So there are some that we won't see the fruits of their false profession of faith necessarily this side of Judgment Day. But on Judgment Day, he will reveal this fact, Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you you practicers of lawlessness. You workers of iniquity, it's translated also as. Surely such people will include the false teachers of today who claim that they have new words from God and those others who push their Marxist agendas and their social justice agenda things that are not of Scripture. They push wickedness of all kinds and do so in the name of Christ. Furthermore, true servants of Christ will be judged by Him alone. And they'll be rewarded according to how faithfully they served Him. We touched on this truth when we were in chapter 3, verses Uh, 12 through 15, Christ will reward us according to what we built on that foundation of the salvation we have in him. Those who are on that foundation are going to be saved, uh, but uh, how we're rewarded will depend in many ways on what we have done in his service. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that Each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. So we judge, you and I, judge by the fruits that others bear. And that's all we have to go by. We can't know what's in their heart. But then we leave ultimate judgment, therefore, to Christ, because we cannot know what's in someone else's heart. So let's consider the lessons which proceed from that fact that the Lord is judge in this passage. Number one... That means you are not your own judge. Verse 4, For I know of nothing against myself, Paul says, yet I am not justified by this. So he said, I'm not justified by the fact that I don't think there's anything here that makes me unfit to be a servant of Christ. He says, But he who judges me is the Lord. So he's saying he's personally unaware of anything about himself that would disqualify him as there are people apparently in the Corinthian church saying Paul is disqualified 
and they're disqualifying Paul by earthly judgments like the fact that, well, he's not nearly as eloquent as so-and-so. He's, uh, he doesn't seem to be too, uh, too up on the Greek debating techniques, even though he probably was, and he uh, did that in Athens. But he said, when I came to Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, so people are trying to disqualify Paul. Paul's saying, well, in terms of biblical judgment, I, I don't see anything that would disqualify me. But he says, I'm not justified by my own conscience here. He, he is not justified by the fact that his own conscience is clear. If he is justified, he's justified by Christ alone. And for that reason, he can say in verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Someone is accusing you of not being a servant of Christ and you know otherwise that you're serving Him. You're doing things that biblically, as far as you know, you're serving Christ. Well, you know that in the end Christ will judge you and and if there's anything wrong in you, He will show it. Paul isn't saying that he's above the courts of the church. We'll see in the next chapter how important the church discipline is to Paul. So he isn't saying he's above the courts of the church or, or of the state even, or that no one else should uh, be seeing if he's bearing fruit. Say, don't, don't look to see if I'm bearing fruit. Even Jesus told people who are... Uh, who denied that he was sent by God. He said, well, look at the works that I do. If you won't believe my testimony, believe the works. It's right for the church to judge whether others are bearing the fruit of repentance and faith. But he's simply saying that, that mere human judgment is ultimately not what counts. Not even his own judgment of himself. It's God who will judge his faithfulness. As the Reformation Study Bible states, though Paul's conscience is clear, ultimately only God determines whether one has proved faithful. If the Apostle Paul could not be his own judge, ultimately, then certainly I cannot judge myself. We cannot judge ourselves in this way. We should be self-examining, certainly. But ultimately, we know that we have to leave judgment up to God. I'm not justified. You are not justified. Counted righteous by God because you feel no guilt. God will judge you. Only if you are in Christ will you be judged as guiltless. You may know more or less clearly how you have served Christ but only he will determine how faithful you've actually been. You are not your own judge. Number two, while you and I can and should judge by the outward fruit that someone bears, you know, it's not as if Paul's saying here, don't, don't judge anybody at all, don't engage in any kind of, of judgments. Uh, if somebody says, well, I'm called to be the pastor of your church. Well, make him the pastor of your church. It doesn't matter uh, what fruits he's bearing. No, you, you judge by the fruits. And we should. But only God knows what is really in a man or a woman's heart. And so only God can judge accordingly. And that 
what is in our hearts is what our service to Christ is going to be judged by ultimately. So you can look at both sides of that coin and say, oh, well, people may think that I'm a horrible servant of Christ, but as far as I can see, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, then just trust Christ will judge you. The flip side of that is people might be praising you and saying, what a wonderful person you are. That's not what gets you into heaven. That's not what gets you rewards from Christ. It's whether Christ thinks you've been serving Christ well. Verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness. So he'll bring to light what's in our hearts. And reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Notice how this fits hand in glove with what we saw in the last chapter. Christ will reward you according to how you served him. Not according to how you think you've served him or how somebody else thinks you've served him, but how Christ knows you've served him. After being saved, each one's praise will come from God. In 1 Samuel 16, we read of the Lord sending the prophet Samuel to anoint a king, to be the king after Saul. And he sends him to Bethlehem, to the household of a man named Jesse. And he tells him, one of Jesse's sons is the one that I'm going to have you anoint. He's going to be the next king of Israel. And Samuel shows up there, he goes to Jesse's household, and he sees Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. And he says to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, this must be the guy. Look at him. He's obviously a kingly man. Eliab looks the part of a great warrior. Just the kind of king Israel needed. Think of, you're looking for a replacement for Saul, and Saul stands, the scripture tells us, head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a big guy. Who's going to replace this mighty warrior king? Well, here, the oldest son of Jesse, that looks like a mighty warrior. But then in verse 7, the Lord tells Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Ultimately, the man of Jesse's sons who was chosen to be anointed as the next king was the one they didn't even bother asking to show up. David, who's the one who was out tending the sheep. Man was judging by outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When Christ returns, he will judge mankind, separating his sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, 31-32, that says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit On the throne of his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll distinguish his servants from those who are not his servants, and then he will reward his servants according to the faithfulness of their service. And only God can do that. Only God knows what is in a person's heart. Number three, until Christ returns, though, and separates his sheep from the goats, you should count all who are bearing outward fruit as servants of Christ. 
Since we can't judge the heart, all we can do is look at someone's outward fruits. And if they are bearing outward fruits, apparently, then we consider them servants of Christ. He'll be the one who separates the tares from the wheat, the sheep from the goats. If someone looks like a sheep, we should treat them like a sheep. In verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. Interestingly, the word translated there as servants is not what we usually encounter in the New Testament when we see the word servant. Most often, servant in in the New Testament is the Greek word diakonos, from which we get our word deacon. Uh, Sometimes servants, in some translations, they're trying to soften the blow, so to speak, and it's translating doulos, which means slave or bondservant. But this is something different. This is a different word. It's actually huperetos, which literally means under rowers. What in the world is an under rower, you might be asking? It refers to the lowest of the galley slaves. Many of you uh, who have a Presbyterian background, uh, you grew up maybe in the RP church or another similar church, you might be familiar with the story of John Knox. John Knox was a Scottish minister. He was one of the great reformers of the church in Scotland. He was a minister of the gospel in the 16th century. He, for various uh, reasons in his life, ended up uh, at one point uh, even as the chaplain to the King of England, to King Edward VI, and he uh, spent some time on the continent, uh, including in Geneva, where he studied under John Calvin. But at one point, he was ministering to the church in a city called St. Andrews in Scotland. So he was serving this congregation there. It's a city that's north of the Firth of Forth, up the, the, on the other side of the Firth from Edinburgh, and, and uh, up a little bit up up the coast a little ways. So he's serving this congregation at St. Andrews, and St. Andrews comes under attack by the French fleet. The French Navy was supporting the uh, Queen of Scotland at that time against the Protestants. And Knox was captured, and he was forced to serve in the French Navy as a galley slave. He was a rower on a warship. And he was freed by the uh, intervention of the English government later on. But similarly, in ancient times, in Paul's day, uh, rowers on warships were usually slaves, often men captured in war. And these warships had multiple levels of rowers. So you would have uh, oars sticking out from different levels of the ship, and depending on how many levels of Row of oars there were that, that uh, uh, the, there was a different name given to the ship. The most con- popular configuration was what was known as the trireme, the three rowed, uh, three rows of oars, uh, three levels of rowers with their oars, and and these uh, triremes and there were even quinquiremes. They had five rows. Uh, the most popular, I believe, was the trireme, and these often had uh, a huge uh, metal ram on the front of the ship just below the waterline so that these rowers would get to moving so fast. They would get these ships moving incredibly fast because they would have someone beating the time, usually on a drum for them, and they would slam that that, uh, uh, ram 
into another ship and then back off, and that would let all the water in just below the waterline of an enemy ship and sink the enemy ship. Well, of course, if you're one of these rowers, the worst position to be in is on the bottom, to be an under-rower. That's what Paul calls himself here. The rowers were chained in position all day. So, for example, if they needed to relieve themselves, they just had to let go, right? They had to let it go where they sat. And so, now the rows were staggered, so you weren't directly beneath uh, someone sitting above you. But if you were uh, at the lowest level, the men at the lowest level were right above all the bilge water, all this stuff, all this refuse, uh, human waste and other things collecting at the bottom of the ship. It was a horrific place to be. Now Paul says that he and Apollos and Peter are like that. They are the, these pitiful slaves, these under rowers in Christ's service. We ought to be grateful for such servants of Christ, but not exalt them to a position where we would factionalize the church over which one we like better. So Paul compares himself and the others to the lowliest of slaves. It was probably the worst position you could be in if you were a slave. There were different uh, types of slavery, so to speak, or different uh, positions a slave could take. And this was one that nobody would volunteer for. If you had a choice, you wouldn't do this. But nevertheless, they are Christ's slaves. and must be regarded as such unless proved otherwise. Count all who bear outward fruit as Christ's true servants, unless they bear fruit to the contrary. But while Paul, on the one hand, compares himself and the other apostles to the lowliest of slaves, to the under-rowers, the low-galley slave, he also compares them to the highest ranking among the slaves, stewards. So number four, the apostles must be heeded as stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The steward is a different kind of servant than the under rower. He's the chief servant of a homeowner who has all authority under the master over the master's property. Think of the position that Joseph was in when in the book of Genesis he was sold into slavery in Egypt and he was purchased by the man Potiphar. And eventually, Potiphar recognized Joseph's gifts and made him the steward of his household. Joseph had authority over all of Potiphar's household except for Potiphar, his wife, and their personal possessions. Similarly, just like that, the apostles have an authority over the mysteries of God. They don't own them. They can't change them. They can't do things without the owner's permission, but they have authority over it. Over them In the New Testament, as we saw recently, a mystery refers to something that was previously obscure, but now is revealed in Christ. And so the, uh, the apostles are the stewards of those things being revealed in Christ. They are the ones who receive the New Testament scriptures or endorse that which was received by others. The elders of the church today, since the time of the apostles, don't have the level of authority that the apostles have, but uh, we can't write or endorse new scriptures. The 
church doesn't have that authority. But to a lesser extent, elders remain stewards of the things revealed in Christ. They're, they're entrusted these things. And this verse is part of the support for the historical practice then of the sacraments always being overseen by elders. But most directly, Paul's statement in verse 1 applies to the apostles. They wrote or endorsed the books of the New Testament, for example. And so we must hear and obey these stewards of the mysteries of God by hearing and obeying the scriptures. The Lord is judge. Only God can judge your heart. Not even you are qualified to judge your own heart. That's why the psalmist says, see if there is any, uh, see if there is not a right way within me. Judge me, O God. The flip side of that is that even if no one else knows how you have served him, he does, and he will reward you accordingly. And he will know the hypocrite who appears to be his servant, who pretends to be his servant, but who is uh, inwardly faithless. Judge Judge others by the fruits they bear, though. But remember that only God can see the heart. As, as for yourself, do not therefore be content with the praise of men and women. The ones who can only see your outward works. They could be mistaken. Strive to be praised by God as a good and faithful servant. Consider everyone who bears outward fruit, though, as you're judging others, You can only judge by their outward fruit. So consider everyone who bears outward fruit to be a genuine servant of Christ unless at some point proved otherwise. Even those who are not genuine will be used providentially for the good of Christ's church. In Philippians 1, 15-18, Paul says that some preach the gospel from evil motives. He says that they nevertheless, or he nevertheless rejoiced because Quote, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. What a comfort that is. So judge by the outward fruits of others and consider those who bear fruit to be Christ's servants unless shown otherwise. Lastly, heed the scriptures, the testimony of the stewards of the mysteries of God, that we would seek to obey Christ by obeying what they have taught. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the true judge. So grant that we might heed and apply these lessons to your glory, that we might indeed leave judgment ultimately in your hands. Help us to discern by the fruits that others bear, whether they are serving you or not. Help us to be iron sharpening iron as we help one another serve you faithfully. We pray that you would grant that we might more and more ourselves be assured of the salvation we have in Christ. But let us not ultimately think that we are our own judge or that we can judge one another. Help us to be humble, to recognize that Christ alone is the judge of his servants. We pray that we would apply these lessons to the edification of your church, therefore, in Jesus' name. Amen.